All right. Well, this morning we're kicking off a week th- or a three-week series. There's a short series called We Are the Body as we're jumping back into, as we get ready for the fall series. And with this series, We Are the Body, we're going to be looking at uh, how God has called us not to be individual Christians set apart for our own or, or doing our own things our own way, but he's called us to be part of this body. And so today's message is entitled, Love One Another. Next week, it's going to be called, Serving One Another. And then in two weeks, it's going to be called, Connecting with One Another. And so we're going to be looking at Jesus' command to us to genuinely love one another as part of this body. And so kind of the primary passage we're looking at is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So I just want to jump into that. All right, so it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says this, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Verse 14, yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body, no matter what it thinks. And in the ear, and if the ear says, I am not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, what would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? Verse 18, but our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Verse 22, in fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard, or sorry, are, <laughs> regard less honorable are those we close with greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen. While the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members, so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each one of us is a part of it. Amen. So, main message here is that we are the body of Christ. Paul says over and over and over again here. And this is really kind of the, the presiding foundational illustration for the body of Christ in Scripture in the New Testament. Is that though the, the Greek word for, for the church is that we're called the ecclesia, which simply means an assembly or a, or a gathering of those who are called out from the world, where this gathering of people, but you see the illustration so often used that is one as a body, a body of many parts all together as one body. So Jesus says over and over again that we are in him. Paul uses the same language, says now we are in Christ. That's not just some theological statement saying that we, we, we exist in Christ, that we are part of his body. When we are saved, we become part of the body of Christ. And I love how Paul describes it in this passage. I want to break it down, starting in verse 12. He says, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. And so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles. Some are slaves, some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. So again, as a church, we are one body with many parts. Hands and feet and ears and nose and armpits and the uvula. 
That's that weird thing that hangs down the back of your throat. But I mean, incredibly, Paul is telling that the body is composed of, of Jews and Gentiles and slaves and free, and all are part of the same body. And then he's going to go on to show that every part of the body is necessary. Wealthy or poor, it doesn't even matter. And in Colossians, he takes another step forward. Check this out, Colossians 3.11. He says, here there is neither Gentile nor Jew, so same, circumcised or uncircumcised. But check this out, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all and but, sorry, but Christ is all and is in all. So now, here in, in, in Galatians, or sorry, Colossians, he includes basically the same ideas, but he adds to it, the circumcised and uncircumcised. But the big thing here is barbarians and Scythians, he adds into the language, which is fascinating. Because the barbarians at that time, that was the Germanic tribes. I think I've shared before, but they're called barbarians because they weren't real very well. And when they looked at their language, when they were around them, they thought, just thought their language sounded like bar, 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 bar. So they, they kind of made fun of them and gave them the name barbarians. That's where that name comes from, because that's what it sounded like when they talked. So you have the barbarians, which is this warring Germanic tribe that they were fighting against. But then you also have the Scythians. The Scythians at that time were a Southeast Asian or Southeast European or Southwest Asian group that were known for being the most savage of all the people at that time. They were the most feared of all the people at that time. You talk about the Scythians, it would strike fear into people. And so Paul is literally saying even the barbarians and the Scythians are part of this body when they come into Christ. I mean, that's like saying for us, if there were to be someone that walked in with, you know, uh, like a Mexican drug cartel with tattoos covering their face, and they walk in, I mean, the, the response of fear towards that person, he says, no, even they are a necessary part of the body. Those that are considered savages, those who are mass murderers, they are an equal part of the body. I had the privilege when I was in South Africa working with people who were mass murderers and mass rapists and people who most people would walk and run away from in the streets and I probably would if I didn't know them on the streets if I, if I weren't friends of mine. But mass murderers, he's saying, the worst of the worst, he's saying, are equal members of this body. And he says this way in Galatians 3, he says, verse 28, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I mean, how many more times does he need to say the same thing? No matter where you come from, we are one. So he's saying in the church, in the body of Christ, in the ecclesia, there should be no distinction between rich and poor, between the educated or the uneducated, those who have been Christians for a long time and those who are recent converts, Republicans or Democrats, pro-pineapple belongs on pizza and anti-pineapple belongs on pizza, right? It's like, regardless of your view, pro those who, who kind of like the new pastor who talks fast and too loud and those who are just waiting around to see if he'll mellow out eventually, right? Before they take <laughs> off. Um, regardless of where you're at, what, he's saying that we, we need to be able to come together and be one body, regardless of our perspectives here. We're one body of Christ. And then verse 20, he says this, yes, there are many parts. He doesn't Acknowledge, he doesn't say everyone's just one. He says we're many parts, but we are one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. We need one another. So, wonderful illustration of one of my kids' toys. So, Mr. Potato Head doll, right? He says, the Paul says, the foot can't say to the rest of the body that I don't need you. I mean, you get this. This is kind of a ridiculous illustration, but this isn't me just using a cheesy illustration. This is Paul's illustration to the church. Literally, he is telling them this. He's like, imagine, guys, a foot being disembodied on its own over here, how ridiculous that is, and then trying to tell the body that I don't need you. Or he goes on, and he says, imagine if the eyes 
were to try and tell the rest of the body that I don't need you. And the eyes are over here by themselves. I mean, however ridiculous it is for me to hold up a plastic eye, what I would have loved to do was to get like, you know, one of those Halloween removed eyeballs that's like hanging down up low. Didn't want to gross people out, but that would be a more realistic example. Like of an eye on its own hanging out here, right? How ridiculous of an idea for this eye to say, I don't need the body. I mean, that's insane. But that's exactly what Paul is showing here. That he's showing how insane it would be, how he's intentionally using the absurd illustration of an set of eyeballs sitting out here saying, I don't need the rest of a body. And he's saying, that is what it is like for someone to say, I don't need the body of Christ. To say, I'm going to live my faith out on my own, apart from the body. And Jesus is adamant about this. Over and over again, Jesus is going to say that him, just Jesus and us, isn't enough. We need one another. We must be part of his body. And Paul is saying this, not just to any group of people, but to the church in Corinth. He's not saying it to a church that was doing well and is all loving one another really well at the time. He's saying it to the church in Corinth who are facing insane degrees of division. I mean, if you thought COVID was polarizing in America the last couple of years, that is child's play to what Corinth was dealing with 2,000 years ago. I mean, they weren't fighting over masks and vaccines and Trump and politics. They were literally fighting over people getting drunk while taking the Lord's Supper in public gatherings. They were fighting over the fact that the wealthy would come to their gatherings, get drunk, and eat all the food intentionally before the poor people got there because they hated the poor. I mean, how messed up and twisted is that? And that's the church doing this. The church doing that. They were fighting over the fact that people were sleeping with their mother-in-law and the church was celebrating the fact that they were having sex with their own family members. They were celebrating people having orgies and worshiping idols and all the rest of it. There was chaos in the church. In the church services, there was arguing and fighting and yelling and screaming, and that's during the church service. It was absolute chaos. And yet Paul speaks to this group that's filled with Jews and Gentiles who already hate each other, slaves and slave masters, filled with barbarians and Scythians and other people who are hated, and this group of people, he tells them, you are all of equal value, and you must fight, not one another, but fight to love one another. You must fight to be able to care for one another. Even you, Scythians, you must be part of this body. We need you as part of this body. Barbarians, we need you as part of this body. I mean, how much easier would it have been for this church just to break into their own groups? I mean, go get the Scythians. Who wants to worship with the Scythians? Give them their own worship service. Give the Jews their own worship service. Give the, the Gentiles their own. Give the barbarians. I mean, let them worship with people who are just like them. Wouldn't that be so much easier? It'd be so much more peaceful. If those who want to shout, because back they're having all weird issues with the gifts, those who wanted to shout and scream during worship, let them have their own worship service, and the people that want to sit there somberly can be able to worship by themselves. Wouldn't that be so much easier? But Paul says, no, we need one another. We are one body, and we will fight to love one another. Paul won't have any of it. He does not say, he says, to not fight to be together, he says, would be like severing an ear, he says and pulling an ear off and saying, I'm going to do this alone. For the hyper-charismatic to run away and say, nope, I can't do this because people believe differently than me, he says it's like pulling yourself off as an ear. For someone to say, I'm only going to, I, I'm going to do this on my own because I don't like their beliefs or I don't like what they're doing or I don't like how that feels. He says it's literally like severing an ear off of a body and saying, I have enough on my own. Just being an ear is enough for me. I can only imagine what Paul would say to modern post-COVID churches in America. 
where so many Christians have decided to have an a la carte, like Netflix approach to church and the body. I'll take what I like, when I want it, at my convenience, in any way. I'll just worship by myself. I'll do it on my own. I don't need the body. I mean, so many people are in that place right now. I mean, Paul wouldn't even recognize much of the church of today as being the church. Where people say, I'll avoid anything I disagree with. Well, I don't like this. That makes me feel weird. Well, I have a different opinion here, and we can't find anything that meets all of my desires, and so, therefore, I'm just going to do church by myself because no one will do all the stuff the way I want it to be done. I met with someone a while back who was telling me that they were going to be leaving Northview. And it broke my heart, and as they were talking to me and kind of giving me their reasons for leaving, they were so sad, and they were, they were, they were holding back tears. And I said, why are you so sad? I mean, I understand where you're leaving. They said, because I don't want to leave, James. I said, I, I get that. I, mean, I don't want you to leave either. I'm like, but why do you have to? And they said, the foundationally, she said, because I disagree with you about this such and such issue. I know we disagree on this issue, therefore I can't be here. I'm like, Really? Over one issue, you say it's worth leaving a family because on one minor issue, we have a disagreement. And I don't even have a disagreement. It's just I might have a different way of interpreting that scripture. And they said, therefore, I can't be part of this and I have to leave. And it just broke my heart because haven't you read scripture? Look at the church in Corinth. They had Jews and Gentiles. Paul said they fought to live. They literally hated each other. They believed the exact opposite about so many things. Jewish men used to wake up in the morning and pray, Lord, thank you for making me a Jew and not a dog or a slave or a Gentile. That was their morning prayer as they woke up, as they picked me up. And meanwhile, they're being told to go love the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews with a passion. And yet they are told to go love each other, to work it out, to find some way to be the body together in the midst of their differences and their hatreds and their passions against one another. Paul says, no, we are not the body unless we are gathering together. They were called to worship together, to choose to love one another. Because we are called to gather as a body in the midst of our differences. Not because we're the same, but in the midst of it. To work it out, that is a beautiful picture. You know, and I'm so grateful for technology that allows us to, to reach out beyond this building, especially after COVID and what's happened. We put a lot of energy into our live stream, and that's awesome. I, I, I love technology. I love being able to put church online. That's a wonderful thing. In fact, my hope is that we can soon start investing more resources into our online uh, discipleship process to reaching those who are not able to gather in person. I want to do more of that. But I do want to say this for anyone that watch primarily online. It's, it is harder to be part of the body through just an online experience in our home. And it's not, it's, not, it's not guilt to trip or anything else, but if you're able to gather, please gather. If it's not with us, gather with a different body, but gather with people who are different than you specifically, not just with those who are just like you, but gather with a body and be forced to love on them and to experience their love. This is part of the command of Christ is to gather. And if you can't for health reasons or distance reasons, I understand, I mean, gather with those you can who are near you, but we are called to be with one another. And why is Paul so passionate about this? They would say that people who are even being called dogs by another person and beasts and savages, he says, no, go pursue those people. Why is he so passionate about this? Because Jesus is. Go to John chapter 13, verse 35, he says this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, he says to the disciples, if you have love for one another. This is how you will know if you follow me, is if you love one another another. That's the way you'll do it. Jesus says our greatest testimony to the world is how well we love one another. Where he says a couple chapters later, we did this one in the fall, in the fall, that's last spring, John 17 verse 20, he says, my prayer is not for them only. They talked about the disciples there. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's all of us today. 
that all of them, that's us, may be one. He's speaking to the Father. He says, Father, just as you and I are one, and I am in you, and you are in me, may they also be in us. Right, that we are one body in him. He says, may we be in him as one body together coming. But why? What's the reason here? So that, you always have to pay attention to the so that, the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is saying the primary thing that will draw people unto him, the primary testimony of Jesus Christ today is when we as believers do a good job of loving one another well. That's, he says, is the primary testimony to the world is when we love one another well. His closest disciple, John, the one who knew him better than anyone else, writes this in his first letter of 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen. But here it is, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So God sacrificially loved us. And now he says, now we must sacrificially love others. And then in verse 12 there, he has that incredible statement that no one can see God, but when we love one another, God's love is made visible through us. Now this is incredible because this phrase, no one has ever seen God, if you regular reader of your Bible, you would know that's a phrase that's been repeated before. John uses the same exact phrase in the gospel he writes in John chapter 1. He opens up the gospel of John, same author, same person, which he wrote a little earlier than this, and he writes this in the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. He says this, no one has ever seen God. Now this is the beginning of the gospel of John. But the one and only son, that's Jesus, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So in John chapter 118, what, Jesus, what John is saying is that Jesus, or no one has ever seen God, he's not visible. But when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, this is what John told all the readers, God became visible in the person of Jesus, right? So Jesus made God visible to the world, and that's awesome for those who lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine. But you see, this is what's so cool. You see, what John is doing now in his epistle, the letter that he writes years later, he now takes that exact language intentionally. It's not by accident. Exactly. He rips it out to make the same point now. And here he says it this way, like he just did, that no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now he's saying, no longer is it Jesus that makes God love visible to the world because Jesus is no longer on earth in that way. But now it is through us as we love one another, God's love is made visible to the world. Do you see that connection? Just as Jesus made God's love visible to the world 2,000 years ago, so now we as his children have the same role that Jesus had in making his love visible to the world. And the way we do that is the way we love one another. That is a high bar that God sets for us as his people. It is now incumbent upon us as his children to show the love of Christ to the world. And that is how God is made visible to a world that doesn't know Jesus, by how we love one another. In the previous chapter, John had just said, or said that, that, Jesus, that God is love. He defines him as love. I mean, that's the defining value of God, that love is the essence of who God is. 
And if love is the very essence of is what defines God, it should be, it must be what defines us as his children. It is what defines God, and therefore it must be what defines us as his children. So John is saying that we Christians only really know who God is when we see Jesus. Then he says the world won't know who God is until they see Jesus lived out in our lives. That is our job as Christians. And this is not an optional part of being a Christian. It's absolutely central to being a Christian that God is love and the way we love one another is the way the world sees God's love. It's through us. For over a thousand years, the church has been arguing over just minutia of details of theology and politics and so many things and so much energy goes into all this stuff of arguing and fighting and backbiting. But if we're going to spend energy on something as a body of Christ, could it please be the things that Jesus spent the most energy on? It should be on how do we love well the people who God puts in front of us. That's where our energy should go as Christians. And Jesus boils down, you know, the, the, two, the, the, the law of the Old Testament, when someone's asked, what are the most, what's the most important ones? He breaks down to two, love God and love one another. That's where our energy should go, living and loving like Jesus. And we're part of this body that he's called us to, where we actively love one another. We actively are part of this ecclesia of caring for one another, loving one another, the body of Christ. There is no biblical understanding of a Christian who is a lone Christian. That doesn't exist in Scripture. There's no example of someone who just tries it on their own. Living out your faith on your own, it doesn't exist in Scripture. And so we can just say, well, everyone needs to come to church then, but here's the problem with that. So many believers who come to church today feel alone even in the midst of a crowd. So many believers feel like strangers in the midst of what's supposed to be family when they come into a church service. You see, we can't say that people need to come to church Unless what we're offering is actual community and actually people are experiencing the love of Christ. Otherwise, if we say, you know, come to church, come be part of this, and what they get is, is cold shoulders and people who are stuck in cliques in some ways, we actually inoculate people to the life of Jesus. Just like a vaccine inoculates people with a small dose of it, it makes it so they never get again. When we have people's first encounter with Christ coming through these doors and they experience something, not just here, but any place of Christians gathering, and they experience cold shoulders, they experience distance, don't experience that love of Christ, we can actually inoculate them to a life in Jesus because they come, they taste, and they say, well, I tried it and it was useless and it was worthless. Just coming to listen to someone talk for 30 to 40 minutes is not what Paul was talking about. Just coming and, and, and being part of a worship service is not what Paul was talking about. I mean, it's no wonder that so many people say, you know, like, I, I don't feel like I need to go to church. I can just watch in my pajamas at home and I get the same experience. I mean, that breaks my heart. I've had so many people tell me that. So what it means is when they've come, not just talking about Norfolk, but any place they go, it means they're not experiencing the love of Christ in that place. To them, church is just a message and some singing of some songs. And that just breaks my heart. It breaks the Lord's heart. If we aren't actually moving towards one another with the love of Christ, seeking out one another, we are not living out our mandate of what Christ has called us to be. You know, I love this story in John chapter 20. 
Uh, Jesus is walking down the road, and he's leaving Jericho, and this huge crowd is just his, his, his psycho fence. So they're just all with him, making all this noise, traveling with Jesus, leaving Jericho in Matthew 20. And as they begin to leave, there's two blind men on the road that are shouting out. And as they're walking, the blind men aren't even heard in the crowd. The crowd is just so excited about Jesus and talking about him and so up in arms about what's going on. They're so excited. They're with Jesus. They're walking through, and no one sees the two blind men that are just there on the side of the road. Who knows how long they've been there? They're hurting. Literally, they're physically hurting, but they, who knows the desperation and the, and the solitude and the isolation they feel. And they're just making all this noise, and they, so they start shouting louder. And you know the response of the crowd when they shout louder? It's saying, shut up! They try to quiet them. Don't you know Jesus is here? Shut up! Stop making so much noise! You're bothering Jesus. And when I think about that story... I feel that story describes so many people that come to church. They, they feel like they're these shouting blind men that are hurting in the midst of a crowd of maybe there's some excited people about Jesus and a few insiders who are really excited to be there. But a bunch of people, maybe not shouting out loud, but they're shouting within and they're hurting and they feel unseen. And so often that's people's experiences. Of people that build up the courage to come to a community. Maybe it's the first time in years and yet in the midst of a crowd they can feel alone and isolated and unseen. Some, again, are hurting and vocalize it, but most just remain silent. You know, the last 18 months of being here, I, I, again, I've had the privilege of meeting with hundreds of people in their homes. And it's been such a joy, in, in, or meeting in my office or other places, connecting with people. And one of the things I so often hear is that people feel disconnected. And they feel alone, especially coming out of, college, out of COVID. And it's a struggle for people to come to church because they just don't feel connected into other people. And I've heard that from newcomers as well as long-timers. I've heard it from older families and younger families, from single people and married people. I've heard it across the spectrum of people. And it's, it's not just a Northview thing. We're, we're not an exception. This happens across the nation as people are struggling, especially coming out of COVID, with feeling isolated and alone, even in the midst of a crowd. And so it's up, as, up to us as the body to actually pursue people and love one another. And, but here's one of the problems with that. I mean, I, I've shared this before, but... The human condition is such that people tend to sit and wait to be pursued. We're easily offended. And maybe we try to reach out a couple times, and and then when we do, we expect others to reciprocate our efforts. We easily grow bitter when people don't do it. We make all kinds of assumptions about other people. You know, the story I most commonly hear when I talk with someone, and it's a regular conversation for me with even people from here from Northview, of people saying, you know, well, I tried. I tried to get to know someone, and I tried it once, or I gave it a shot twice, and I went and spoke to someone else, and no one spoke to me. And I waited three or four weeks, and no one spoke to me. So clearly, this is an unloving church, or something along those lines. In our own pain, we can create some really unrealistic expectations for others. You know, I've often countered, I mean, multiple times in that situation, I'm like, oh, really? Because, I mean, I love you, but I also saw like four or five other people talk to you today. And there's always a reason, well, that doesn't count because of this, and that doesn't count because of this. And I'm like, and this person told me they were asked about this and pray for it. Yeah, well, that doesn't count because of this. They're so myopically focused on, on the bitterness and the re, this expectation of unre, unrealistic expectations that people can't even see it when it happens. And usually it ends with saying, well, I've tried and I'm done. This isn't going to work. I've told this story before, but when I was in South Africa, we were part of leading a, a, a mission organization that uh, had hundreds of missionaries that served there. And one of the greatest problems with hundreds of missionaries living overseas is isolation, which is really sad because it's all these missionaries from overseas gathering together. And, and oftentimes what we found is that the, we had internet across all the buildings, and the biggest thing is Netflix. On the, on the, everyone's just binging Netflix every night. 
And I was once talking with these few people, I think I shared the story here before, but um, three roommates all were in the same house, and each one of them told me the exact same thing, that every night they just binged Netflix in the night, ate by themselves in their room, and then went about. They were so isolated and alone. And each three of the three of them said that. I mean, if only they could have just opened the door and come to the living room, they could have watched Netflix together and eaten their food together, but they didn't. And when I, when I challenged them about that, why don't you do that? You know, the response was, well, last month I invited them for dinner, and they all said they couldn't do it, so clearly they don't want to spend time with me. But that was one time. Well, there was this other time. There's always an excuse or a reason for why they're the victim in that place. Instead of, why don't you just pursue one another and not just making the assumptions that other people don't like you or don't want to be around you? My guess is this sounds familiar to many people, this kind of mentality. Jesus has called us as Christians to be a body. He's called us to pursue one another, especially those who are hurting but we have to stop expecting that others are going to do it well or waiting for others to move towards us. Or saying, you know, I invited someone to dinner. Now I'm invite, waiting for someone to invite me back. Or I've pursued people every week and no one's pursued me. I mean, it was just last week that there was someone that told me that they invited uh, three different people for meals at their house. And they said it was wonderful. And now, but no one's invited them. And they said they're not going to invite anyone else to their house until someone invites them. And they're choosing isolation and solitude. Instead of choosing to love, but things were not responsible for, for, for other people's actions. When I was a leader in South Africa, we used to host meals all the time, Sarah and I. And I used to get in the habit of, because you could eat out really nice meals there for like five bucks a person. It was amazing, the market. But um, I used to treat people all the time. I mean, hundreds of t- people I treated out for meals and coffees. Coffee was like a buck fifty for something better than Starbucks on the, right on the beach. It was amazing. Um, Cape Town's awesome. And, uh, and I, used, I, mean, I treated hundreds of people out for meals. And it's just what I did. And you know what? If I were to think back of the 12 years I was there, the amount of people who treated me out for a meal, I could probably count on one hand. I did literally hundreds of other people. And there was a time where I grew better. Why doesn't people do this for me? And I, eventually the Lord dealt with me. He says, that's not your job. Your job is to be obedient and go love sacrificially. That's what you're called to do. And loving sacrificially means you do it without expecting anything in return. And as Christians, we may be good at loving, but we're not very good at loving sacrificially because we usually expect something back for it. So I'll treat someone out for dinner, but I expect to be invited back. Or I'll go talk to someone, but I expect someone to reciprocate. Everything's based upon reciprocation. Even giving is based upon reciprocation that someone was going to give back to me. But that's not what sacrificial love is. We are called to love sacrificially, which means we love with no expectation that it'll be returned or repaid in any way. And instead, we trust that God will be the one that fills our cup, not other people. And sometimes, because of the way we give and love, we'll get incredible, mutually beneficial relationships. Sometimes, yes. Oftentimes, we'll just pour out for others and expect for God to keep filling the cup. So our job is to sacrificially love others, especially those who are hurting. And Paul touches on this in the next passage. He says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he uses this great word picture. He says, in 22, in fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. Check this. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This is kind of an awkward passage here, if you realize what he's saying. Because Paul really is saying what you think he's saying if you're paying attention to the language. He's comparing people to being like some of these less dignified parts of the body. 
He's comparing people and their gifts, saying that some people, their gifts and who they are, they're kind of rejected, they're less dignity. He's referring to reproductive organs and the hindquarters here, directly referring to those places. He's saying that these parts are the areas that are hidden that you may feel so insecure about because maybe you feel like you have less dignity. Maybe you feel too broken or too abused or you have nothing to offer. But Paul says even those parts have great value. And in that culture, those were considered disgusting and, and, and hidden. And I'll be honest, I've taught through this passage many times, and this is actually the first time I've slowed down to think about this particular weird part of it. It's like, why is he talking about, you know, the intestinal evacuation system? Like, why is he referring to that? And why? And I, I even looked it up in some Greek commentaries that are experts in Greek, just to make sure. But why is because Paul is saying, literally, some of you feel this way. Like, that's all I got to offer, is what comes out of that system. Right? I got nothing to give. I'm useless, I have nothing to offer. And Paul is saying, no, even that part is cared for. In fact, he doesn't say it's cared for. He says it is given greater honor in the body of Christ. Because as a body, no matter where you are, we care for one another and we will build up and lift up those who are struggling and who are wrestling and who are hurting and don't feel that they're gifts of value. He says we need those gifts even more is what Paul is saying. We have to give extra care to those things. Verse 25, he says, this makes for harmony among the members. So that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body. And here it is. And each of you is a part of it. So Paul is saying, as a body, we care for the entire body. Especially those parts that are hurting or undignified or feel lost or alone or isolated. Like the blind men shouting in the midst of the crowd unseen. Or a person kind of silently slipping in and slipping out of church unseen. Paul says if one part suffers, we all suffer. That we are Christ's body and we must care for the body. Care for the lonely. Pursue one another. And there's so many that are hurting right now. It's just the reality. So many who are in so much pain. And it's often not the people you think. A while back, after I shared a message on anxiety, someone came up to me and, and shared you know, their own struggle with anxiety and depression and, 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 uh, and wrestling deeply with these things. And I couldn't believe it, it's one of the most bubbly, extroverted people I know. And they were talking about their world is just collapsing right now, and they're struggling so much. You would never know it based upon the surface, what people are dealing with underneath. But if you just stop to say, how are you really doing? You get to know them, all of a sudden this stuff comes out. And the implication of this message obviously covers all of life. We can apply it in so many different ways to every aspect of our life. But this morning, I want to take just one small point of application as we wrap up. And I want to apply it directly to our church and how we even gather in our corporate gatherings. Because we are not just individuals that come to church. We're each part of a body that's called to serve one another. This is what the body of Christ is all about. That when we come, we're not just an ear or an eye or some appendage that's stuck on its own. But we are a body. And what should draw people to want to come to church, again, is not great worship, it's not dynamic speakers. You can get that on Spotify or on a podcast if you want that. But it should be experiencing Jesus made visible every single time we come as the body of Christ makes Jesus visible to the world in the way we love one another. That is what should draw people. You can't get that streaming online. I'm sorry for those who watch online. But the truth is, for many people, when they come in the building, they still don't get it. Because sometimes we're not doing what we're called to do and loving the way Christ called us to love. We as a body must love those who are in the body. Imagine if every person in our church 
saw it as their responsibility that every week they reach out to one person to genuinely seek each week. Somebody, it could be on a Sunday morning, could be outside of that. But specifically on a Sunday morning, each person reaches out to one person they don't know well to find out how they're doing, learn their name, and pray for them. Imagine what would happen. We have a couple hundred people who join us every single week. Imagine if every single person here made that a priority every single week. I'm going to pick one person that I don't know well. I'm going to pursue them, get to know them, find out their name, find out what's going on in their life. I'm going to pray for them either right there on the spot or during that week. I'm going to follow up with them the following week next time I see them. Imagine what would happen if we did that. Take time to pray, to ask them how they're doing and to find out. Now, if that freaks you out because of, of the pain you're in, that's okay. We're a body. We can cover for those who are in pain. But it's often said that the way you spell love is T-I-M-E. You heard that before? Time. And it's true in the sense that when you give someone your focused attention, it's one of the greatest gifts you can give someone because it's the most precious resource we have. You can give someone money, and that's great, but you can always make more money. You can't make more time. So to give someone your time, to choose to love someone, to tell them you have value, you have dignity with me, and I'm giving my time, which is I can't get it back. I'm giving it to you because I care about you, because I love you, and I want to be part of this body. That is an incredible gift to offer. And it's something we can't just leave to the extroverts of our community, or to the greeters at the door, or to the families in our midst who are just known for going out, whether it be the Reichlands or the Sandys or the Kathy Kennards or the Templins or so many others I can name that are just incredible at pursuing other people. We can't leave it to those who do it naturally or who have done it well. We all must do this as a body. Because we can't say, oh man, Northview, it's, it's unloving. But who is Northview? Is it, our, is it our seven staff members that are on the paid staff? Is it me as a senior pastor? Is, is that what Northview is? The answer is no. We are a body. It's us. We must live this out. And so my challenge to us as a church this week, as I wrap this thing up, is each week make it a priority to seek out one person, just one person a week, who you do not know or know well, and pursue them. Every person, one person a week. That's it, one person a week. If you've got a couple, come a couple minutes earlier or stay a couple minutes late, go for it. But just one person a week is all I ask. Some of you do this naturally. Amen, keep leading the way and do your 20 people, right? Just we love you. Thank you so much for doing that. But if everyone could just do one person, it would so drastically shift the dynamic of this place. Especially seek out those who are sitting alone. Or those you don't recognize. The stories of people that come through this door, we almost every week, we have new people coming through our doors. And I get to know a lot of them. So often, the person walking through the door, it's at the end of a journey where they've been wrestling with so much heartache and pain. As they walk in, they are shattered, they're hurting, and they sit down just hoping in some way that God can meet them in that way. And we are the body of Christ. And if we don't see them in that place, we miss out on an opportunity to love them with the love of Christ. I know some people want to slip in and slip out, and God bless them for that. I, may we at least foil their plan of at least saying hello. I mean, don't obviously hound people that are trying to get out of here. But at least foil their plan by at least acknowledging them and saying hello to them. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but oftentimes when I'm not preaching, I see new people. I shouldn't say this from the front, but I go and I sit like near them during the, at the end of the worship time, and that way, right as the worship ends, I'm just like, hi. Um, <laughs> sorry, I've done that to you, sorry. That's, uh, don't do that, that's creepy. Um, <laughs> Does that seem realistic, though? Just one person a week? I think that's doable. Just one person a week. Someone who's not in your inner circle, and specifically those who are new, you don't recognize, those that are sitting alone, but anyone and everyone. And if you're watching online, I ask you, come join us in person if you're able whenever possible. And if you can't come in person if you're online, if you're distance or health, we fully understand, but love those who are near you. And I know this takes time. 
And so that's why announcing today, we're actually, I'm starting on September 25th, what we're going to do, because we need time to be able to do this. Starting September 25th, we're pushing back to start a second service by just 15 minutes, specifically to give time for people to connect more. Right? That, that, that's what it's for. So we can give time for people to connect. So if you're part of second service, you just please come similar time. You're always late anyways. And so come to similar time. You'll have time to connect with people that are part of first service. And then we'll start at 1045. We'll have that extra room for us to be able to connect with one another. And also maybe sometimes some extended worship or ministry times. I want to finish this one quote this morning. It's by Dr. Kent Hughes out of his book, Commentary on First John. He says this, Our spiritual maturity is not measured by our age or how long we've been a Christian how long we've been a church member, or how much Bible knowledge we have, but our, our level of service in the church. No, our spiritual maturity is measured by our love, how well we love one another. And that's what should be defined as Christians. Not just in this building, but beyond these buildings as well. And that's what I used to train with all our missionaries working in South Africa for years. I used to always say, like, we have no right to go out there and talk about Jesus and how much he loves people if we're not actually loving people in here in this building. And the same is true of our church. If we are not actively choosing to love one another here, the hurting, the isolated, the alone, if we can't do it well here, what right do we have to walk out there and invite people into a place where we're not actually doing it? So may we do it, may we do it well, amen?